Welcome to episode eight of Learn Me Right. Today, we're here with the wonderful Dr. Steph Jowett, who has just published a book on consent for medical treatment of trans youth. We're very excited to speak with you today, Steph. And we're wondering if we could start by asking you what your position is here at QUT. Yeah, so I'm really excited to be on the podcast today. I'm a lecturer uh, at the Queensland University of Technology, and my research largely focuses on the intersection of children's health and the law. So I'm an early career researcher at the Australian Centre for Health Law Research, but I also teach as well. An excellent teacher, might I add. <laughs> now, we have some rapid fire questions for you. Uh, first, things first, pronouns? She, her, or they, them. Thank you. Coffee order? Batch brew, uh, specialty coffee. Excellent, excellent. Uh, highlight of the year? Probably publishing this book. Um, finally seeing the culmination of a lot of work in a really tangible form has been pretty exciting. Yes, and massive congratulations. We will be saying that over and over and over again. Um, finally, um, karaoke song or karaoke at all? Uh, no karaoke at all. Uh, not because I'm hugely vocally challenged, though I certainly won't say I'm the most excellent singer, <laughs> but uh, just generally not a major fan of of bangers, of of really of catchy songs, really catchy tunes because they're really catchy. Yes, yes, the catchiness can be quite a problem. Yeah. Yes. Thank you for your honesty and authenticity. I'm sure our viewers will appreciate that. I agree. I'm sure there are many uh, non-karaoke lovers that listen to us karaoke haters unite that's exactly (laughs) right (laughs) so Steph our first question for you is what is your research problem or what sort of topic in particular are you looking at so I'm looking at really the laws around adolescent decision making around how we handle uh young people really moving from um, a space where they're dependent to a space where they can exercise rights and exercise their own autonomy and In that space, the law applicable to trans youth has been sort of singled out from the law um, in this area generally. So I think there's a real problem with how we deal with this this problem of capacity in adolescence and, and how that's reflected in the law. Thank you. That's a really great overview. I'm wondering if you can just tell us maybe a little bit more about how it's been singled out from other areas of of law around consent in relation to teenagers? Yeah. So, I mean, more generally, when we're looking at uh, the laws that surround children and consent to medical procedures for them, we have this idea of special medical procedures where particular treatments uh, are singled out as attracting a different set of rules than applies for other types of medical treatments. And the reason they do so is because it's considered that those decisions should be uh, should have greater oversight by the courts, and it originated in the context of intellectual um, of sterilization of intellectually disabled young people, given the background there of inappropriate sterilizations of people who would potentially be able to have capacity as adults and not want that sort of treatment. Uh, so there's this been idea that the this idea that the courts act to protect young people and to take those decisions out of the hands of parents who may not always be well-meaning um, and and not really so much young people um, in terms of the way that this law originated. Um, 
But the long and short of it is that it's come to be applied to gender-affirming medical treatment and it's been through the court system since 2004. Gender-affirming treatment for young people has attracted these different rules, which largely require them to come before a court in order to have a valid form of consent that medical practitioners can rely upon. Okay, so what you're saying is that we don't children don't need to go to court to have a consent to a broken arm. No, they don't. But then there are these more serious things like sterilization of young people, especially in situations of intellectual disability. Are there are, what are the other serious medical procedures? That's a really good question. And honestly, the category and what fits within it has waxed and waned over over the years. So one example I'll give here is that surgery on intersex. Uh, young people has you know one judge says that that's absolutely a context in which it's appropriate to have the court acting as a safeguard um, whereas another judge has said no they don't fall within that category um, that's an entirely separate issue to um, gender affirming medical treatment for trans young people but I guess that's just an example of we sort of what fits within this category isn't always certain. It has in the past included indefinite detention in a medical facility for treatment um, in a psychiatric ward. Um, it's also included uh, bone marrow donation um, where the there isn't a direct benefit necessarily to the child who's donating. Um, and there's some other sort of types of medical treatment that um, you know, potentially fall within this category. Um, abortion, for example, in Queensland, there's been a judge, two judgments in Queensland that have discussed that abortion for young people or termination of pregnancy rather um, is a type of decision that shouldn't be made by the parents of children. So the limitations generally are, are directed at removing decision-making away from parents um, rather than the young people themselves. Um, and it's generally because there's considered to be potentially a conflict of interest there that parents might not be acting in the best interests of children. So, yeah, it definitely doesn't apply to those more routine um, interactions that people do have with the healthcare system. Yeah. So generally children can't consent to their own treatment. So parents consent for them. But then in very certain cases, even parents can't consent. We have to get the court involved. And for trans youth, this is where they sit. Yes, and and the law has has changed a little bit on that. So over the years, at different times, different types of gender affirming medical treatment have been considered to be a special medical procedure and to require that level of court oversight. But the court has generally relaxed con, um, their sort of um, control over that over the years as medical knowledge has has developed, as clinical practice has evolved. Um, but there are still um, aspects of the law that do still apply and that are still are quite uncertain still. Yeah. So, you know, it, they're not totally out of the court system at this stage. There is still a degree of um, special treatment that's being applied. Yeah. And the essence of your book is that this is problematic for several reasons. Yeah, yeah, it's hugely problematic because we there was a qualitative study by my colleague Fiona Kelly at La Trobe around, it was a qualitative study that interviewed um, trans, the parents and uh, the families of, of trans young people who go through this process. And the process is, is we know to be um, really harmful for trans um, young people and their families and quite damaging. It can result in delays to treatment. Um, it's, it's, 
it, it, it has a normative impact. It, it, it suggests that this treatment isn't, isn't valid, isn't therapeutic, um, which is hugely problematic because we know that it is um, so valid and so necessary for young people. And the, the outcomes of not receiving treatment, of not receiving timely treatment, are incredible uh, because it can either contribute to continued suicidality or even prompt suicidality if if a, if a trans young person realises that they're not going to be able to access the healthcare that they need in order to live um, their best lives and to be thriving um, in their bodies. Yeah, so the court process is not a quick process. So in the time it takes to get consent for treatment, a young, pers- a young person may have started developing and those developing or developments may be irreversible, even with continued treatment. Yeah. So um, if if a young person doesn't receive puberty blockers, then um, which is the first stage of, well, is one of the earliest interventions that's considered in this space. Essentially, if your puberty isn't being blocked by those puberty blockers, it's going to continue um, irreversibly advancing towards um, secondary sex characteristics that align with um, the sex assigned at birth. Um, For those beyond puberty blockers, so talking about having um, gender-affirming hormones, say that's estrogen or um, testosterone, there we're not talking about um, puberty developing so much as we are not enabling them to develop through the puberty of um, the sex that that identifies more, aligns more with their um, experienced gender. So really we're just deferring benefit. Um, and as well as that um, distress that that around their body not aligning um, with their gender continues in the background. Yeah. So you've said that the courts are slowly relaxing, but is that a, a linear progression or is it still unclear? There's still uncertainty. Yeah, look, it was relatively linear up until very recently. So the first court case was in 2004, um, and then we had uh, another key case in 2013 and 2017. And these these two sort of big decisions in 2013 and 2017 really removed the court um, from many situations. However, in 2020, we had a new decision that kind of unwound a lot of these things um, and at least shifted shifted the, the direction of the law away from um, decreased court involvement and really, I guess, positioning the court as, as, a, as having a role continuing um, into the future. Now, this has been uh, a different interpretation has been taken by a judge in the Queensland Supreme Court, but at this point, we really just don't know. We have uncertain laws. So, Yes, it 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 was developing quite in a quite a linear fashion, but now we've gotten to a point where it's a really huge mess and things aren't progressing in the direction necessarily that they were before. Yeah. So I have a question, um, and I guess there's a couple of parts to it. It sounds like first of all, there's a problem with going taking that step back towards more cult court involvement in these kinds of decisions but also generally the second problem is that it is really unclear and there's conflicting decisions all across Australia in terms of sort of resolving these two issues that are sort of interrelated what can governments or lawmakers or people who are making policies or or hospitals do about this how can we kind of shift it towards that decreased court involvement and maybe some consistency across Australia yeah and this is something I, I I think about very often and I definitely have an evolving opinion on this. 
But I guess the way the law has developed thus far has been completely through uh, judgments of mainly single judges of the court. But what they're doing is they're considering a single child in front of them and they're crafting law that applies to the particular factual scenario in front of them. They're not really kind of making law for everyone. And that's a real problem, I think, that this is this is a this is something that deserves to be treated um, consistently across Australia. And it needs to take into consideration all of the different aspects that feed into a consideration of what the law should be. And so I think that the common law is just really an ineffective tool for advancing the law in this area. I have no doubt that continued cases will come before the family court because of the messy um, nature of and uncertain nature of the law at this point. But I don't think that that's going to get us to a point where this is solved. I don't think that another court case is going to magically provide certainty on all of these aspects of the law that are currently uncertain and problematic. And if anything, another court judgment is likely to just introduce further uncertainties um, and, and potentially further problems. So on the one hand, we could see another full court judgment come in that could um, shake things up a little bit and could provide some certainty. However, I'll be honest, I'm I'm still wrestling with what impact that would have as against what a Queensland Supreme Court judge would have would be saying. I'm not so certain that that would necessarily clear it up. Uh, in that context, a high court judgment would be excellent because that would apply consistently across Australia. But as we know. High court judges don't often act in concert, and we may have conflicting judgments of even high court judges. Um, and again, through the court system, they're only going to be considering the factual situation in front of them. The court system and the common law is not set up to craft laws of general application. And so in that context, I think legislative certainty is really required here. Um, what that looks like, I think, is definitely up for discussion because I think it is a much broader inquiry. But I do think that everyone in this space deserves certainty of the law and deserves some um, some consistency um, in terms of ensuring that it covers everything. It covers everybody who who potentially is coming into the hospital or coming into the healthcare system, going to their GP. Um, that it appropriately responds to all of the stakeholders in this area. So, yeah, that would be my preferred um, outcome would be some legislative intervention. So taking away this medical decision about what is in the best therapeutic interests of the child from judges who don't have medical training and putting it back into the hands of policymakers who are informed by clinicians in this area. Yes, certainly. And obviously judges are receiving evidence from the treating doctors um in the cases where they are considering particular best interest considerations for individual young people. But you're right, it, it it deserves a more thorough inquiry that takes into account all of the leading medical experts. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think it's really interesting that like, because in the absence of le clear legislation on puberty blockers, on on, on gender-affirming gender hormones. Gender-affirming hormones and then surgery as well. In the absence of clear legislation on who can consent, is it the parents, is it the child, is it the child in certain circumstances, is it a guardian? Um, 
the, the court just keep continuously keeps getting involved and it gives opportunities for different judges with different views who receive different evidence to then make law, which is why it is so incredibly confusing. Yeah, and I think one of the key aspects of the book is looking at what does the medical literature say on this and how does that compare to the conclusions that judges have made about medical evidence? And throughout the sort of the course of this body of jurisprudence in Australia, judges have consistently gotten it wrong. Judges have consistently um, mischaracterised medicine. And I think that stems from a, a lack of, of social understandings of, of so many things that underpin this and cisgenderism, right? The framing of transgendered pe transgender people as, as different, as othered, as special, as as requiring a different set of tighter controls over their bodily autonomy than do everybody else. So judges have essentially proven themselves to be ineffective assessors of medical literature. And I think that that means that they're not the ones to solve this for us. And yeah. really this does need to be in the hands of um, yeah, legislators and policymakers that can receive evidence, quite comprehensive evidence that, you know, Case inquiries that go before, um, you know, family courts or Supreme Courts, like they are necessarily time limited inquiries. They are considering, considering an urgent scenario in front of them. They don't have the time to sit and consider this evidence for months and to make really um, considered decisions to, to do lit reviews, to do um, you know, doctrinal research to 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 work out what the best type of law would be for everybody. And yeah. so that's the major difference, I think, between progressing this law through these decisions versus some legislation coming in. Yeah. Um, so I think we probably have one final question, Steph, and that is what does the ordinary person, everyday person, need to know about this area of law or what could we do to help as lay people in this area? I think it's just really important for everyone who isn't um, involved in research in this space and who doesn't have a lived experience that you are listening to media that is reporting responsibly on this topic. It is a topic that is uh, subject to a lot of moral panic and where medicine is being mischaracterized by actors who are um, by by bad faith actors, whether that's in the media, whether that's within um, the legal academy or whether it's within medicine. There are a lot of people who position themselves as experts who say that they have a particular opinion on what should or shouldn't happen in this space. And that breaks through to lay audiences who, who don't have the um, appropriate medical or legal background to be able to critically interrogate that. And so I think it's just really important to become informed about this area through uh, people who are actually experts on this, um, medical practitioners who provide opinions in this space um, are those involved in, in the healthcare of trans young people. But then there is also a subset who, who have no experience whatsoever with treating trans young people, but their voices can often be louder. So I think it's just really important that um, any for all of us um, to be aware of what the actual medical literature says, what the evidence truly is, um, and for that to inform any legal um, reform in the future. Yeah. 
So being really wise about who we're listening to, maybe if you're uncertain about something, use a fact checker, which is what um, our well, one of our earlier episodes was about, was about source reliability and ensuring where you get your information from is the most expert and authoritative source on that topic. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that really a large portion of this book is about um, kind of debunking as much as that's not an, a, a highly academic term, but in this space, it's often often information is presented as being factual and as being evidence based when it is not. So it's just really important that the law going forward is shaped and crafted by accurate and valid interpretations of medical literature, and that people are able to advocate for that, knowing that knowing that the current legal framework here and, and attempts to constrain gender-affirming care um, being provided to young people overseas, for example, in the US and in the UK, that we're knowing that these restrictions aren't aimed at the best interests of young people. They're, they're, they're propping up a heteronormative, cisgendered legal ideal um, rather than the reality. Thank you so much, Steph. Yeah. Uh, that was incredible. Thank you so much for your insights. Um, I've learned a lot about the topic today and I can't wait to read the book. So thank you again for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me on.